Radical Truth is a podcast produced by TBLI Group and hosted by Robert Rubenstein. TBLI is making the financial system work for all. Our podcasts cover the wide range of ESG and impact investing topics. What it is, why is it booming, is it really helping, is impact regenerative in nature? How will climate change impact investments? There will be regular interviews with thought leaders, some known, some not known, but all brilliant, and we will have engaging conversations with all of them. Can we create an economy based upon well-being? Let's make the financial system work for all. This is Radical Truth. The leading private banks control vast sums of wealth through the management of the wealthiest families and individuals. With more and more clients wanting their money to be used for more purpose, the role of the private banks is critical. Listen to three senior managers of private banks share their experiences on increasing money flows into impact investing. This is Radical Truth. Welcome to our, from our studios in Amsterdam and welcome to uh, the three panelists who are joining us, our first panel that we've been doing. Uh, I appreciate everyone's time. Before I introduce everyone, for those of you who haven't joined before, if you want have a question or a comment, just type in the lower right-hand uh, area. If you need to say a private message, just move your mouse over the name of the person and send them a private message. So we're very lucky today because we have three senior people from the uh, private banking space, um, one, uh, private bank out of Liechtenstein and two out of uh, Switzerland. So I'm Rosa San uh, Georgia, uh, James Purcell and Michelle Karai. They are going to tell us, are the private banks blocking the door? Are the clients not interested? Or is there a secret to unlocking that? So um, I'm going to let each one introduce them briefly, who they are, what they do, and what is the bank doing in the in the impact space. So starting at the, my top right, Rosa, James, and Rashila. Thank you, Robert, and thank you, everyone, for joining uh, this call today. Um, I'm leading uh, the responsible investing uh, uh, space in Pictet Wealth Management, which is you know the private banking space of uh, of, of Pictet. Uh, you may have uh, the name of Pictet. Um, we are actually um, in the space of responsible investing since basically the beginning of when it was started. You know the Pictet uh, Bank at all because it was always about long term and uh, responsible investing is among the investment beliefs. You may have heard about our funds. Uh, mainly on the thematic side, so a lot of is happening on the on the fund side. What I'm trying to do in the private banking space is looking at what clients want and actually make those investments happening. And what we are seeing is that we are seeing a movement from intention to action. This is extremely important. We were chit-chatting with Robert uh, earlier, and. Uh, this is actually happening now. In the last 20 years, a lot of people were talking about responsibility and impact investing. And uh, the way of implementing of the institutional investors was a lot through 
risks and mitigating risks. And now actually this is not exciting for clients. What clients are asking now is to transform their intentions into action. And what the private banks are trying to do is to remove all the barriers that we have, because there are some barriers in, into the implementation. And uh, you know, one of those barriers is the distance between, uh, for example, public assets and private assets. This is actually something that we are working on. Another barrier is the educational part. So getting people understand what does it mean or what it doesn't mean. And so this is actually the work that, that we are doing together with, you know, obviously, the most important thing that is creating investment solutions. So our mission is to create um, uh, superior investment solutions. And today, superior investment solutions means both financial returns and actually a positive impact on society and the environment. Thank you, Rosa. So, James, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with you and your very, very illustrious career, high up the food chain, uh, tell us a bit about yourself and what you are doing within your own bank. Sure thing. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation today. It's always a pleasure to speak to people who are engaged and also equally critical of this space, which I think is important. So I had the pleasure of looking after sustainability from both an investment side and also a corporate side at Quintet Private Bank. Um, many of you may be familiar with the name of Quintet. It's actually a rebrand from an organization called KBL. It's about 50 offices across Europe, 80 billion of, of assets. And the reason why we rebranded to Quintet was actually a huge part of trying to build a bank with purpose and with sustainability at the core of its investment uh, proposition. Uh, prior to joining Quintet, I was at UBS Wealth Management, where I also headed the sustainable investing and impact investing uh, offering uh, for uh, several years. And therefore, when we talk about the challenges that private banks have to embrace impact investing, I think I can hopefully approach it from a large bank perspective, which is UBS, there is, there is no one larger, uh, and also from that more medium-sized bank, which is my, my, my current location at uh, Quintet. So very much looking forward to partaking in, in this uh, conversation today, and happy to try and be as pragmatic, as honest uh, as I can be about uh, all these challenges that, that we face. Okay, thank you, James. Rashila, uh, give us a little bit of background on who you are and what you're trying to do with it. Right. So actually, my background is slightly different. I don't come from the finance side, so to speak. I come from the sustainability side, having worked in corporates, having worked in consulting, having worked as an ESG analyst, and now in the world of uh, private banking and wealth management. So my role at VP Bank as head of group sustainability encompasses both the corporate sustainability side as well as what we do in terms of integrating sustainability into our product offering. And last year we spent um, quite a bit of time looking at sustainability from a strategic point of view. What do we need to do in the corporate side and as well as what do we want to do in terms of sustainability and sustainable solutions towards um, client offering and how we integrate that into, into um, everything we do. And I'm quite happy and quite proud to say that the strategy that we've come up with, um, I mean, we know the biggest impact that we have as a bank is through the investments and how we direct capital um, into which direction. So we actually <clears throat> have defined a strategy where we aim to have a net positive impact through the investments that we've made. Now, I'll be honest and say we don't know how we're going to measure that yet. 
Um, but that is certainly the direction that we want to go and to be able to prove that in a very credible and legitimate way. This, of course, uh, builds on just integrating ESG into all investment decisions. So we're at the point now where we have this strategy integrating it into everything that we do, both in the product side as well as in the advisory side, and then building on that to really look for impactful solutions that um, that we can offer to, to our clients. So that's where we are now. And for us, I'll admit, it's a fairly new journey. Uh, we don't have a long history like uh, Rosa mentioned with Pick Day, but, um, but we see the importance of it. And not only that, but we see the opportunities that this space provides in, in us as a business and to be able to offer our clients something that they want, moving from intention to action and positioning ourselves for that. Uh, uh, going to Jane. Since the first financial crisis was very much most of the money they were spending was ICT, cybersecurity, compliance, and capital buffers, and then maybe some for bonuses, not so much for internal awareness. So what part of what I just said is true or untrue? And um, how do you deal with that? So the compliance point is spot on. And uh, unfortunately, it's a genuine legitimate barrier, not one that's being created artificially. So to put that in a little bit of color around that, if we think about a compliance process, you need to be comfortable from a due diligence that the asset or the asset class that you're investing in is not going to cause your investors harm. So, for example, if you want to offer listed equities, right, it's a relatively straightforward process and you get access to $70 trillion worth of opportunities if you can get comfortable in offering listed equities to your clients. Okay. However, if you want to get comfortable with a single private equity fund, and that perhaps you're going to raise 50 million, 100 million, 200 million for, you actually have probably more detailed um, due diligence process due to the complexity of the instrument, which in this case, private equity. And then if we go one step further, we want to offer a direct impact investment, let's say an investment in a, uh, a solar plant or a fantastic uh, you know, community farming initiative, then we're talking about something that requires an even higher level of due diligence due to the idiosyncratic risk. And of course, we're only going to be raising, let's say, 1 million, 2 million, 5 million. So when you think about that scale where complexity and size actually cross over, it is of little surprise, actually, that there are genuine compliance and uh, hurdles to offering more impact investments to, to, to our clients. They are more complex to, to do due diligence, which raises the cost, and the ability to scale them for our clients uh, is actually lower. So as a consequence, um, this is a genuine hurdle. There are ways around it, and there's ways to make it easier, um, but it shouldn't be underestimated. And it's frankly no one's fault here either. It is a legitimate reality of the nature of, of the business. Um, uh, Rosa, I, I want you mentioned something uh, to me the the other day. You know, it's it's almost like the movie Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. So if the client wants it, you'll get it done. So how far will you go for a rather complex, high risk, high social or environmental impact 
that you would get through compliance and the client because the client wants to do it like regenerative action. Um, I mean, I think, you know, that this is a, an extremely important question, Robert, because uh, compliance is, uh, let's say, the word that we give to our internal processes in the banks, but it's not that compliance doesn't come by itself. It's not that some people in the banks want to be annoying. It's because there is a regulator outside, and we all, as a society, want to have a regulator because we don't want, you know, banks to do whatever they want. We want to have a regulator, and the regulator is coming to us with some rules. I mean, you may have heard, uh, everybody have heard, uh, heard about uh, um, MIFID two, for example, or, or Basel, and now the EU action plan. So the regulator tries to protect investors, and when to protect investors, they need to create rules. And they create these rules. So the point being, uh, connecting to your, to your question, um, is not that when we want to um, offer clients or answer to client requests, we try to uh, find a way around our compliance. The question is, how do we ensure that we still comply with what the regulators want. So the fact that our clients are informed, transparent, that the solutions that we are offering them are aligned with the risk profile and all those very important things and how do we make it happen. And there are ways of making it happen. There are ways of creating structures, creating funds, uh, creating solutions. Obviously, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of money in some cases. If a client comes to me and says, you know, Rosa, I have this 100 million and I want to do regenerative agriculture obviously i will do everything in my possibilities to make it, it happen and today it's easier because we have more and more solutions 20 years ago the only way was to go around and search if there was some land that we could do reforestation on for example now we are we have a lot of opportunities there are a lot of innovative enterprise that you can you can bring in still a lot of the impact, and you know better than me, Robert, is in the private space. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think, you know, one thing that we could do all together, because I mean, I think the clients want to go from intention to action. Private banks want to go from intention, everybody wants to go from inten intention to action. Well, we need to convince, we need to convince the regulator to be a little bit consistent because the regulator is telling us, you have to make an impact that we need to blend public and private money uh, to go into a certain direction, but the regulator is also telling us you need to give your clients solutions that are that have daily liquidity. This is actually not compatible. You can't have long-term plans and the impact if you want to have daily liquidity. So the regulator needs to, you know, come in the direction of the private assets to allow us to do more things. But you know, we are we have the resources in the banks to serve the clients and we are trying to match, we are trying to bring the bridge between all those innovators that are out there with all those um, those assets. But it's at the moment a lot of work and we could be helped by, um, let's say, rules a little bit more relaxed on the, on the private side. Just to give you an example in Europe for a client that is not 
an institutional client or a professional client is very difficult to go into, yeah. the, into the private space. You know, you need to create tools, you need to create boxes where you put the investment in. And this is obviously um, expensive. And this means that, you know, the barrier or the level of investment needs to be higher uh, in order to, to justify the afford. Uh, I'm I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure if I just may say that I'm yes. not so sure if everybody wants to go from intention to action because it was just published an op-ed piece in the U.S. newspaper that the CIO of BlackRock made it very clear that there were no interests at all to go from intention to action within BlackRock, and it was more about greenwashing. So just just I need to, to address that. But from the the only one of the four of us that is actually a sustainability nerd, Rashila. Um, um, Thank so, you for that, Robert. I mean, you're you're the, you're the one that really you know wants to see it from a systemic point of view to get more money in there because you know you know how to measure and, and what is the impact of that. Are you able to convince your financial nerds that this is a good idea? I'll get to that question, but if I could respond to this, the, the regulatory question, the compliance question that we had earlier. Um, yes, of course, not all products are suitable for all clients, but that's not only for sustainable and impact investing, right? That's just across the board of all types of investments. So um, the, it's the same rules, but now we have this other topic in that category of sustainability and impact. But I firmly believe that it is there is something for everyone because if we take the spectrum of sustainable and impact investing, there's the rational part, which is about integrating ESG to identify long-term risks and opportunities, right? So that's just good decision-making. And it doesn't matter if you quote unquote believe in sustainability or not, it's just adding additional information for better informed decision making, right? So that should be suitable for um, a wide spectrum of clients. Then on top of that, you have the personal preferences where then you do get more into the possibility of impact and these sorts of things where it's connecting to a particular topic or a particular value of interest to the client. So I firmly believe there is something for everybody and it's just matching the solution to to what the clients are. And um, then to go back to your question, um, for me, that's what's also very important is if you say you have an SI offering, then show me how it's an SI offering. Because, you know, this goes back to this whole issue of um, I'm not going to use that word that's overused, but let's just call it overselling. And um, then show me, show me how you're creating an impact, not just because of the money that you're putting forward, but what change is that money causing? What risks are you avoiding if it's a, a risk avoidance uh, uh, ESG strategy? And um, I think that disclosure is so important. And then that is, let's say, when I talk to my colleagues internally, it's it's related to that. It's about better informed decision making. And as Rosa mentioned, if the clients ask for it, then of course we're gonna try and fulfill it. So, um, you know, let's see what, let's understand what they want and what we can do to, to fulfill that with what we have today, but then also thinking about how we build on that going going forward. And for me, the biggest thing is it's awareness raising and it's yeah. capacity building and it's on both sides. So it's 
it's very easy to use sustainability as an excuse to overcomplicate an issue. So bring it back down to the basics, bring it back down to simple messages, help the, the organization understand why this is an opportunity. And it's not just all negative, negative, negative. There's business opportunity here. And then also informing clients. I mean, we did a workshop with, um, with some of our clients last year, which wasn't that long ago. And we were still hearing that, oh, I'm not so interested in sustainable. And this is with um, intermediaries. My clients aren't asking for it. I don't see the need to go into the space, but because of regulation, I know I have to do something. So, you know, the people on this call and the conversation that we're having, we get it, but let's not forget that there's quite a significant population out there that isn't quite there yet. So for me, it's messaging, 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 awareness raising, capacity building, and that's that's really my focus. And James, how are you getting, I mean, you're a fan. I mean, you're, that, you've been doing this a while at UBS and now at Quintet. Are you getting the resources to build that capacity? And are your clients interested? I mean, it, I don't mind if people are not interested. That's fine. It's their money. They can do what they like. But do you find it a hard sell to your clients or more to your team? Um, I think thinking of it as a sell is probably incorrect. Um, I think the better way to think about it is what is someone interested in? and then reflect what they're interested in. So if someone comes and says that they're really interested in healthcare, they haven't used the words of sustainable investing or impact investing or values-based investing, et cetera, but they've expressed something that they are passionate about. Maybe they've worked in the sector and were an entrepreneur. Maybe they're involved in it in a charitable perspective, or maybe they've just had a unfortunate event in their family. So, I think the key to this is not trying to sell to people. It's actually just to listen to people. And everyone has their interests. Everyone has empathy. Uh, everyone has things they care about. They just may not present it to you in, in you know, the technical language that you, know, you and I may be used to from working within the industry. So when I think about uh, resources and how to go about acquiring resources, um, for me, it's how I would go about acquiring resources, whether I was running a sustainable function or not, which is you put forward the business logic, which in this case is, is a potential pathway to faster asset growth um, due to the rise of the uh, wealth creators who have a high affinity to this topic. It's a potential pricing uh, beneficiary because you're giving more than a investment return. You're given an experience. You're given uh, you know, a sense of well-being. And it's also potentially a retention tool. So when I think about gathering internal resources and buy-in, again, I, I'm not talking in the language of sustainability or even doing the right thing most of the time. I'm talking in, in the language of assets, pricing, retention, and that I find uh, connects with everyone because at the end of the day, incentives are hugely powerful and aligning incentives, I think, is how you uh, make organizations uh, uh, move and migrate. Rosa, is, is the interest... Uh, from intention to action, is the is it primarily coming from the next gen or the patriarchs uh, or the the boomers? You know who who is you know calling you? Hey, how can you never show me anything around regenerative agriculture? Um, the interest is coming from everyone. 
So until uh, probably 15 years ago, we would say it was the millennials and the women, because I mean, women are, are you know, the ones, you know, the ones to do, do good. And, uh, and obviously this is aligned. The millen- there's, I mean, on the, on the millennial side, we, we all agree. But what we have seen last 10 years, we have seen a lot of, uh, you know, the older generation, so the generation X, uh, let, let, let's call them, and even, you know, the older generation, the baby boomers, um, they're probably in with a different perspective. I mean, as, as James was mentioning, they, they may use a different language, they may ask for different things, but they all, you know, it, it all goes back to sustainability. They may ask for mitigating the risks. They don't want to invest in oil and gas because they know that this industry will be very heavily regulated. You know, the, the price of the oil will not go, uh, you know, in, a certain, in any case above a certain level. So they may look for uh, re- risk mitigation. Then there is the all um, entrepreneurs. They are actually coming in heavy now because they look at the opportunities. And I think, you know, this is a huge switch. And this is also participation of the intention to action again. It's not anymore about uh, excluding. You know, it's clear that excluding is not impact investing. So if you exclude stock, the bad guys, you can't qualify this as, as impact investing. So people are going into the opportunities space. I mean, we all know the numbers. We all know that we will need 2.5 trillion every year in order to achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Entrepreneurs want to capture that. Entrepreneurs are telling me, Rosa, if there is a solution to the problem of climate change, actually, I want to invest in it because there will be a lot of money. If there is a solution for, uh, you know, regenerative agriculture and the fact that, you know, uh, we can reduce the one third of CO2 emission that comes from, from, from land, I in the past a mismatch or uh, you know not enough education in banks in general um the big ones and the small ones and the education of the front so the private banker that serves the uh, the client was not able to read between the lines to read that if the client is um, putting some solar panels in his villa in, in Mallorca, maybe he has an interest in the space. That banker, until you know five years ago, was coming back to the uh, you know to his bank and saying, "Oh, my client is not interested in ESG; he just wants to make money." If we create this awareness with our front people, what we are all doing, we're all doing education internally in banks, um, we will realize that they will be able to pick up on those things and then connect the dots and then transform from intention to action. I had um, actually recently, I did a survey among my um, my bankers hmm, to understand where are they positioned. And I asked uh, about the intention of their existing clients and the potential clients. When we look at the existing clients, they still, they were saying that a 15%, 1-5, was probably the ones that are still in the traditional investing. The rest were about ESG integration, responsible investing, and the positive impact, you know, the EU uh, action plan regulation. When they look at potential, you know, there's zero in the traditional space. And there is 60% between, you know, the responsible and the positive impact with 20% in the positive impact. So there is a shift. The, the bankers are realizing is that if they want to 
find new clients, this is actually where the space is. And as the second point you were mentioning, we were asking James, how are you uh, finding or how are you um, dealing with convincing internally? Um, I recently joined um, PICTAPE and uh, it was the warmest welcome that I've ever had. People were calling me without knowing me and telling, oh, yeah, you're coming. And I had people calling me and writing me emails telling, you know, can, what can I do for you? People want to work for me. I arrived with one person. We are four and we will become five. And a lot of volunteers are working with me. So internally in the banks, they want to move and, be, and they see that clients will, will move to. And uh, Rashila, was there a big party when you arrived at uh, VB with a big banner? Welcome, Rashila. Champagne, and let me tell you, it was, it was a rocking party. Um, I actually had a similar experience. I joined VP Bank about a year and a half ago, and um, this was, let's say, the first dedicated resource that they had on the topic of sustainability. So there were people that were working on it on a personal basis, you know, just because they saw a value in it. Um, but my role was to bring structure to that, and it was really nice and very refreshing especially considering, you know, as a sustainability person, you don't always get a welcome um, to say, this is great. I'm really glad that the company is actually now doing something about it. What can we do together? And um, so it's been quite easy, let's say, to, to jump right in. And of course, you know, you do have those critical conversations as you should, but um it makes it a lot easier to do my job when people are saying, okay, we know we need to do something, or this is really great, especially the young people. I had so many people come and say, look, I'm on a, on a rotation. You know, can I come work with you next, you know, when six months later, when this starts, or what can I do? Or can you tell me about what's going on in this space? So that's actually really very rewarding for, you know, us that are trying to push this agenda within our organization. And, and uh, James, you're, you're, you have a more complex bank because you have a lot of different brands. It's not one brand, it's multiple brands and probably different cultures. Does that make it also more challenging on uh, not selling, as you said, but kind of getting people enthusiastic about the opportunity? Um, it's actually, I don't want to sound too positive, but it's, it's, it's actually the opposite. So what we described is correct. We are affiliates of seven different countries with uh, maybe five different brands, and everyone's got their own culture and history. So by identifying with sustainability, what we're building is a common culture across those. It's very hard uh, for someone to disagree with a sustainability agenda. So if we're talking about how, as I said, we're going to be building our products that connect with clients, that can help retention, that can so forth, it's very hard for people to resist that. If we'd come in and said, we're gonna do a giant derivative structured product push, then obviously there could have been pushback, if you see what I mean. <laughs> so what we actually find is it's a very good way to build a common identity for a firm, uh, employee engagement, employee uh, productivity, um, and, and, and as a consequence, it's actually, it's been the opposite. It's been a helpful, a helpful aid to our brand building um, internally. But what um, I see that many, many banks, many private banks are in one way or another embracing 
um, sustainable investment or ESG or impact or, or Yeah. Robert froze. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so um, maybe you know I can pick up because I was reading a comment in the chat. Um, Mr. David Berners, I think is uh, uh, he was uh, agreeing on education and agreeing on on private assets, and he was asking us um, about the investment opportunities and how we are building the shelf of investment Fine, opportunities. All right, they're back. Oh, okay. So, okay. sorry. So, um, how do you, it, you know, it, it's because I've seen a lot of banks saying, you know, we're really committed to this, but, you know, they're not really, uh, they don't want to be seen as the impact bank because they're not, but they don't want to be not seen as mm -hmm. that. So, um, how do you navigate that space where you're, interested you see the business opportunity and you think you can actually attract more assets because of that but you're not doing it in in your communication we got exactly that question when we did the stakeholder engagement last year when we were doing the strategy development and the question was so are you guys now becoming a green bank and the response was very clear it's like no we're not becoming a niche quote-unquote green bank and then they would compare us to some uh, of the small boutiques um, are going to become like them and the answer is very clear no we're not we're uh, a traditional private bank but that doesn't mean that we don't move into this direction for all of the reasons and the arguments that we've talked about is that there's money to be made here you can avoid risks and um, and these sorts of things so hey, James I think I can echo that, which is the uh, the idea of trying to be a trusted fiduciary to someone to manage private wealth rather than institutional wealth. Um, by definition, what your client is paying for is an experience and a relationship and something that goes beyond the financial return. Otherwise, they'd all be on interactive brokers right? and, and, and trading for pennies. So. It's not out of character at all for a wealth manager to take a interest beyond the financial statement, whether that's the client advisor, client relationship manager, you know, bringing a present to the client's children on the birthday, you know, or whether it's talking about sustainable investments. Um, I think it's 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 pretty congruent with a the profit seeking uh, mission. Yeah, is I mean our mission is superior investment solutions, and you can't have superior investment solutions if you only look at the financial side today. Nowadays, you need to have a more holistic perspective. You need to have a look at which is the impact that the environment and society has on the company, and the impact that the company has on the environment and society in in general. And uh, um, you know, I was uh, I, I was talking with with someone and. Uh, if you do not consider environmental and, and, and social in, in what you do, um, you will lose actually opportunities. You may lose actually talents in your organization. Uh, clients may not come um, 
to you if you are not looking at those things that all the others are looking at because i mean it's becoming uh, is becoming quite standard so actually the question is do you want to be in the business of the future or you don't so i i think you know this is this is the question and there's not any more a niche a niche market i mean rashila was mentioning before uh, the let's say esg integration part you know now we are all esg integrated basically because the eu action plan made it clear and uh, when you look at the data from jp morgan 45% of of the assets um around the world are are already you know in the esg integration so this is actually the, the bread and butter of everyone as a private bank if you want to offer something more hmm, you need to go into the direction of promoting social and environmental and targeting impact and measuring the metrics because otherwise the rest of, of the screening is already done so is the question do you want to be in the business of the private banks of the future and does it also influence attracting talent how your bank in the offering its commitment do you see that also hey we're you know people heard of what we're doing over here we're getting um uh more easily talent people want to come uh, come here do you do you experience that in in each of your banks or is it too early 100% 100% actually it, it is it is it is i mean you it's visible when you have um a position open in the sustainability space you have much more curriculum that you have in the other spaces and even if people apply to the other spaces they are looking what you're doing in the sustainability side so actually it's a, it, it's it's a clear trend also on that side and i mean we were talking about the typology of uh, the types of clients before and uh, yeah the new gener for a, the new generation is actually a common ground um there there's no way that they would do something without looking at environmental social are you look are you only really only looking and making more money uh, is it, it, really what you do so this is actually the reaction if James, you is that them. true for for uh, for your bank um i think it's it's true in theory which is um you know there's a reasonable amount of research these days that say that people prefer to work for purpose led companies mm. and they are willing to take a pay cut to do so and that's logical enough if if the choice is you know purpose led or not purpose led it's kind of a free option as it were um and we certainly see both in my former company and here it's a particular popular kind of rotation amongst the the graduates and the interns and so forth um that said i think it's probably a, a bit of a stretch to then extrapolate that and say that that is a a driving force behind the entire workforce and 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 their retention and 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 the attractiveness of this it's certainly not harmful in the vast majority of cases um but again put my kind of pragmatic hat on i think it's probably an incremental positive uh, rather than you know a, a game changer uh, so to speak you know again trying to be as frank and honest about this as as i can it, it's certainly not harmful but I, i don't think it's 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 a silver bullet by any stretch of the imagination it's better than a fork in the eye i understand so <laughs> exactly better than a fork in an eye and marginally better than being handed a fork <laughs> and uh, rashila are your university buddies calling you hey can i can you get me a job at vb i hear they're doing cool stuff on sustainability Actually I have to say that I echo a little bit of James's experience um and part of it is probably because the topic of sustainability 
is relatively new and uh, and we're building this up. Um, but we do have the young employees that are enthusiastic about it. What's interesting is if I compare that to my previous experience when I was in industry, heavy manufacturing, and there when we um, there were what we heard from HR is that potential candidates would look at the sustainability report. So we got so many questions coming to the sustainability department from potential candidates or from HR um, because one is heavy industry and they're engineers, but they want to work in a place that's actually trying to improve in that industry. So I saw it more there than I do here, but perhaps that's that's early days. Um, but what we do see, we just did a university recruitment event, uh, a workshop with some students. And in the area of finance, there is definitely an interest in, yes, I want to, you know, I'm interested in sustainable finance. And again, I think it comes from there's some, you know, there's a good career to be made here. And that's, you know, driving, driving the perspectives. At least that's what I've seen so far. Has the has the new EU regulation that came into effect March 10th, uh, has that had any influence whatsoever on your organization? Um, yeah, it's secret? been a lot of fun, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> you call that I'm fun? deeply, deeply involved in the EU action plan. And um, so, you know, when we're talking about... Um, client interest and compliance in these sorts of things. So it'll be really interesting when the requirement comes into place about asking clients their ESG preferences. So how are you going to ask that in a way that fits with what you offer? And then how are you going to fulfill the client's request when they come back and say, yes, I'm deeply interested in this topic. So you have to be prepared to be able to offer something um, that, uh, that, that fulfills their needs. So that'll be um interesting to see how it is and then the whole disclosure so what are we talking about when we're talking about a sustainable investing product and as rosa said esg integration that's the that's the norm that's the basis you know just doing a few exclusions doesn't count as si anymore right so um the in in my opinion the intention is right but it's it's not been a fun process. Let's let's put it like that. Hey, look, I think James <laughs> had lots of fun it. doing it. How, what is what has the reaction been um, within your organization? Has it been actually stimulated or or slowed down the process? Um. So by definition, it's 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 making some people talk about the subject because it's a regulation that has to be fulfilled. Um. I don't think anyone finds this an inspiring piece of regulation. Um, it's disclosure-based, it's bureaucratic-based, it is, uh, has multiple flaws in the availability of, of especially the corporate data. Um, it's a very indirect way of trying to cause impact rather than directly regulating the real economy. They've tried to do it via the financial system, which is slightly obscure. So internally, um, we acknowledge that it's a regulation. We will absolutely fulfill the regulation because that's our legal obligation. But it's certainly not client-centric and it's certainly not a client experience. Um, the likelihood of any of our clients coming in and asking, have you got Article 6 or Article 8 products? It's just not going to happen, um, and nor should it happen. So 
Um, yeah, it is what it is. It's a piece of regulation. We're fulfilling it. Um, maybe there's some hidden benefits that I've missed, um, but it's, it's, it's largely uninspiring, to be honest. And Rosa, do you think that it will filter out um, the, the, the pseudo-sustainable funds, or will it just make your life more miserable, or will it actually help, help you in offering product to your clients? Because it, it doesn't, from what I've heard from Rashila and James, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be like a positive win for capital mobilization. Mm, I think, you know, that uh, we will see two waves. The first wave, that is what we are Sounds experiencing. Sounds like COVID almost. <laughs> almost, you know. <laughs> so the first wave is now really the aftermath of the 10th of March because the 10th of March was a big day for uh, for all of us that had to classify our products. And in the aftermath, what, what, we, what we see is that there were a lot of managers that were rushing to classify their products into Article 8 and 9 that are the more cool stuff, you know, the responsible and the sustainable stuff. But rushing over means that instead of diminishing, you know, the, um, they say the greenwashing, uh, you may um, increase it. So you may have people that have tried to classify themselves as eight or nine, but not really being responsible. So they were, let's say, pushing a little bit. So in the aftermath, I think, you know, that it's, uh, let's say, a negative outcome because, uh, the original idea of the EU action plan is to help clients compare Apple with Apple and go into the, you know, um, creating an impact. But I think, you know, that because now those people have committed to do stuff, have committed to reporting, have committed to promote environmental and social criteria, have committed to target to, um, you know, some impact metrics. I think, you know, that the second wave will be a wave in which everybody will need to restructure, having more data and look through the things in a, in, in a slightly better way. What I am concerned about, as I think, you know, I hear between the lines of, of Rashila, is the now the second part of the story, so is the EU taxonomy. And with the EU taxonomy, unfortunately, the EU, um, you know, they are going into the right direction, but they basically identified six type of activities that are, according to them, impactful. It's 10% of, of the capitalization of, 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 you know, of our markets. So it's very limited. And again, you classify based on the activities that you are not in and not the impact metrics that you are calculating. So this is, you know, a little bit. But I mean, as, as in all things, I think, you know, is the initial, initial push at the beginning. You know, it's, uh, it's difficult. People try to cheat and then uh, we will go to in, into the direction of having more impact hopefully, and calculating, measuring, you know, the outcome that we create and then uh, potentially, effectively, the greenhouse emissions that we absorb or sequester. There was a question from David for actually all three of you. Uh, we would be interested to understand the product range approaches of the panelists toward filling the shelf of sustainable investment opportunities, which type of products, how they're mixed by wealth managers, split ESG, PEVC. Can, uh, can, if each of you would make a stab at answering that question, I'd be very grateful. Shall I start? Okay. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, what we are doing, I mean, obviously in the public market space, um, what we see is that sustainable investing 
is about, uh, let's say, participating to the company's impact because when you buy securities or you invest in a fixed income security, you're not creating additional, let's say, let's say impact in that sense. You participate to the company's impact. So what we are trying to do, apart from participating to those companies' impact, we are trying to do uh, to be um, active owners. So we are voting, we are engaging, trying to sustain the transformation of, of those companies. And this is actually... Um, let's say the majority of the work that we do in the public space, because when we deal with private clients, it's actually difficult to go in the private space. We are, in any case, working on the private space. And in the private space, the approach will be different because we will work at the so-called investor's impact. So where do we put our money and what our money creates? So if we fund companies that otherwise wouldn't be fund on the private equity side, or if we, if you, if we invest in debt for, uh, you know, um, I don't know, startup companies in the indomation space. And this is actually what we are trying to build more in a thematic way, uh, because obviously impact is huge. You have 17 sustainable development goals. Uh, so we're trying to do it um, in a, let's say, in a more thematic way. The themes that we are seeing coming from our clients, obviously. So it's climate action, regenerative agriculture, responsible consumption, for example. Okay, James? Yeah, I, I'd first echo that um, distinction, the difference between participating in a company's impact, which is what happens in the public markets most of the time with you know, potentially some impact caused by the, the active engagement um, and the active ownership. Um, and then in the private markets, of course, there is there is greater scope to put fresh capital to work and therefore you know, create incremental impact. I think when we think about our public equities, um, we are very much of the belief that sustainability should be an investment philosophy, as it were, just like a value or growth strategy is a philosophy. Um, so we are, we employ a couple of different strategies. The you know fairly obviously named leaders strategies, um, where companies that are leading on sustainability with the premise that they will have fewer adverse events and compound cash flows. This idea of improvement or momentum, the companies that are on those transformative journeys and how they can, again, re-rate and uh, you know, become, become more attractive. Um, the concept of thematics, which Rosa mentioned, of course, you know, the, the people who are providing products and services. And then finally, where there are dedicated assets um, that are designed with sustainability in mind, green bonds, development bank debt, these kind of ideas. So we try and talk to people in a very human language. If we say the word leader, everyone knows what leader means. If we say the word improver, everyone knows what improver means. But really treating it as this is our investment philosophy. We're not value investors. We're not growth investors. You know, we have this sustainable toolkit, and that's how we're going to invest for you. Okay, and Rashila? Yeah, maybe a little bit similar. Um, so integrating sustainability as part of your investment philosophy and then translating that into into the, the different investment products that you offer. Um, one of the challenges that we have is as a small bank with the resources that we have, active ownership is an important topic for us, but we're now looking at how can we do that without having the ability to have a, a dedicated team on you know, to, um, to, to carry out the voting and engagement activities. So now then you move into partnering with organizations that, that can help you to do that. So we do rely a lot on, um, other organizations to help us just because we're too small to be able to do these activities ourselves. And, and then, um, moving into the, the private equity space, uh, yes, uh, we have that and we're now building up the, uh, impact 
uh, private equity in that. So right now we're still in a little bit of a creation journey in terms of um, other asset classes outside of listed equities. Um, but that's definitely the direction that, that we want to go into. And one of the things that we're looking at also is this idea of, um, you know, these illiquid assets that require a large investment. Um, so it's not available to, to a lot of people. But what can we do to break that down, you know, like a tokenization of these illiquid assets? And is there a way to make them liquid? Is there a way to break it down into smaller chunks that you can bring in other investors that might not have that big pocket or the big pool to be able to to go into it? So that's one of the areas that we're really focusing in on this year to see how we can how we can deliver an impact to uh, a wider client base. But uh, with uh, uh, Rosie, you mentioned about you, they want daily liquidity and, of course, they want 20 percent returns and, and all of that. No risk. Uh, it sounds like I'm listening to my wife also, what she was looking for in investment. But um, so but you said that a lot of your clients are interested in private equity. So how are you how are you doing that? Uh, actually, you know, the client doesn't come and ask for private equity. Oh, OK. Yeah, but the client asks for, for an impact. He asks to um, invest in innovation. And, and often, you know, the innovation, uh, the impact, the target impact uh, comes from the, the private side. On the public side, you have more, uh, you know, diversified companies that have a very sustainable um, uh, or a sustainable behavior. But, you know, they are less actually in some cases less innovative and less focused on, on specific topics. So actually the clients do not come with an asset class. The client can come with, with an idea. I mean, James was mentioning, you know, uh, they, they come with an interest. And then in some cases, that interest is uh, better translated into the into the private side than, than the public side. Our job on our side is actually to read what the client wants and understand how we can offer a diversified portfolio. Because obviously, because we have to match with the risk profile, we can't offer 100% of any liquid solution. So Rashida was mentioning the issue of private markets is not an issue of, of impact, is, is, is in general, we have been used to have in general in portfolio less than probably, I don't know the numbers overall, but I would say less than 10% of our assets are in the private side. And, and it was okay like that. Now, if we realize that the investor impact is mainly done by that pocket, we need to try to grow that, that pocket, basically. But clients are not coming with, with a distinction. They want to have an impact. They realize that, you know, the impact that you have with, with public equities is different from the one from private, private equities. But they also realize that, for example, the impact on the equity side is different from the impact in the fixed income side. So the paradox is that you make actually more impact. If you are an active shareholder, you make more impact on the fixed income side. Because on the fixed income side, there is a continued issuance of bonds of that company. So you will have continuously the possibility of disinvest potentially, which is you know, different from, from, um, from, from the public, uh, public equity side. And, and James, do you find also that clients are more receptive to illiquid investments? other than, you know, real estate? Um, yes, but I think the reason predominantly is not due to um, a desire for impact amongst your average client. It's uh, a consequence of the low rate environment. So as they have been, you know, 
compressed their returns in their conventional liquid assets as fixed income has been yielding close to zero in, in many in many geographies. Um, first, they move up the risk curve, so they will start investing in high-yield credit. That's a trend I think most private banks experienced over the last you know, five to ten years. And then, of course, naturally, they then start being pushed to take uh, illiquid risk in order to in order to uh, you know, meet their return objectives. So, yes, there's an increase in appetite for private equity, but I'd say the first and foremost reason is a financial reason, um, you know, rather than any um, uh, any uh, do-gooding uh, uh, motivation. Okay, we're coming toward the end because I'm very con- conscious of the, your time and I know you've got probably six things that are waiting to co- come into your room. So, Rishila, what can this audience do that's listening live and to the tape to help you? Oh, I don't, I don't, you're, you're on mute. I just said the most amazing thing and then okay. <laughs> I forgot it so I can't repeat it. <laughs> um, no, what I was saying is it goes back to the comment that we started with is, um, you know, as a client, ask your bank, talk to your bank and say, hey, I'm interested in this. What do you have to offer? And it goes back to if you ask for it, you know, we'll, we'll try and fulfill it because it's good business for us. So um, and then on the client uh, on the internal side we also have a job to do to um, make our clients aware of this and I agree we should use simple language but if clients aren't aware that there's opportunities to make money while also having a creating a positive impact then it's our job to also help them help them do that as well so it goes back to you know capacity building talk 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 keep the messages simple and James, other than bringing a 500 million euro check to you, what can this audience do to help you? I think it's a, a collective responsibility to be vigilant. Um, you can't outsource um, topics like greenwashing to a regulator. Um, it's it's everyone who's within the ecosystem one way or another. There's a vigilance, I think, required and the ability to self-police. Now, we, we've seen that work very successfully in some areas. You think about how the green bond market has developed uh, under under ICMA, how a trillion dollars that's done a very good job of self-regulation for the most part. Um, and in other parts, we've done a really bad job. So if you look at some of the statistics around supposed sustainable investing assets of thirty trillion, we've done a terrible job at self-police, self-policing ourselves there because obviously that number is ridiculous and not true. Um, so I think vigilance is the one thing that we can all do, um, and the more that we can self-police and the more that we can, you know, set standards, uh, the better it is because that's a industry-led, client-centric approach. It's not a hard hammer coming from a regulator. Um, it's not, you know, it's something that is relevant and, and intuitive for most people. And Rosa? Okay, I will echo what uh, Rashila and James were mentioning. Uh, awareness, so support us, uh, you know, uh, creating awareness on this topic. And uh, the other thing is uh, uh, stay positive and not get cynical because I know that if you are uh, in, in the long term in this journey uh, and uh, and you knock the doors and it, it, they don't open, you may become cynical, but we need 
this and we need we need positivity and we need those opportunities of investment to happen we need uh, clients to ask for it and uh, and i deeply believe that we are at a turning point from intention to action we have all the signals the bias that there were before the fact that impact investing is concessionary you do not um earn as in the other opportunities there are not enough opportunities all those bias are you know um uh, going down one by one so it, it it's the moment so don't get cynical okay thank, thank you to our guest and audience for joining us today if you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more please subscribe where you listen to your podcast this was radical truth stay safe